We decided that we'd um, end this professional day on an upbeat entitled Better Off Dead. <laughs> this is a topic of huge interest to nurses um, everywhere because you're at the front line when people are at the end of their lives or people who might be better at the end of their lives. Uh, enormously controversial. Uh, sometimes it's a failure of the system um, and sometimes it's just biology taking its, making its way but the system doesn't actually match what people's needs are. And this uh, sufficiently moved Andrew Denton to make 17-part podcast series and a series on Radio National. By the way, one of my worst decisions when I was running Radio National was not to hire Andrew for a program on Radio National, but there's a long story behind that. Um, Andrew has had a glittering career in television where he's managed to mix humor, satire with the serious and the in-depth. And uh, he is somebody who believes in um, the intelligence of the audience and the ability to understand complex issues. No more so than this, which is crowning his career to date, which is the Better Off Dead series and a campaign which leads from this. Please welcome Andrew Denton. Thank you, Norman. I know it's been a long day for you, and, and this isn't going to uh, lighten your mood at all, but uh, there we go. I'll start with some gratuitous sucking, but it's a true story. I am really delighted to be talking to you because uh, when I was 17, I had a bad car accident. I spent two months in hospital in uh, Bathurst and then Katoomba. And in that time, I uh, developed an undying respect for nurses because I saw what it was you had to do. I saw how patients and sometimes doctors treated you, and it had nothing to do with the fact I was 17 and being sponge baths. Uh, it was... <laughs> so, that's the gratuitous suck over with. Let's get to the, uh, as Norman said, the light subject of assisted dying. Who am I to be talking to you about a subject as complex as assisted dying? I have no medical qualifications, just two failed, sad Logie nominations. So what would I know? It's true I have no expertise other than the expertise that many people share. I saw someone I loved die badly. My dad, Kit, used to joke that he wanted to go by walking into the shallow end of an Olympic-sized pool filled with whiskey and just keep walking. <laughs> Sadly, that didn't happen. Watching him die remains the most profoundly shocking experience of my life. He was 67 and, though clearly dying of heart failure, and obviously in great pain, Dad was assisted to die in the only way that Australia's laws then and now would allow. He was given ever-increasing doses of sedatives to settle the pain. But morphine never did settle the pain, not his and not ours. The images of those final three days will never be erased. That was 19 years ago. In the years since, whenever I've talked about it, I've been struck by how many respond with similar stories about people they love dying slowly, in pain, and seemingly beyond medical help. Every time I hear it, I think, surely we can do better than this. So 16 months ago, I set off to try and answer that question. In that time, I've spent hundreds of hours talking with nurses, doctors, politicians, lawyers, academics, priests, surgeons, palliative care specialists, and activists on both sides of the debate, both here and overseas. Above all, I spent time with those who embody the need for this law in Australia, the dying and their families. 
All of this I turned into the podcast series Norman mentioned, Better Off Dead, freely available online, and my contribution towards informing and inflaming the debate about assisted dying wherever it may be. Along the way, I've discovered two immutable truths. One, dying is complicated. And two, people cling to life more fiercely than you could ever imagine. Remember that because it's important. People do not want to die. My starting point was an anti-euthanasia convention in Adelaide featuring speakers from around the world. Here I heard in detail warnings about what was happening in places where laws to help people die already exist, of babies and children being killed, the vulnerable being made expendable, people being euthanized without their consent, of doctor-patient trust destroyed and palliative care services degraded. Belgium, Netherlands and Oregon, I was told, were societies weakened at their moral core, a slippery slope where the number of people seeking to die were sharply on the rise and the reasons for their legalised deaths ever expanding. At its heart lay two key accusations, that the safeguards don't work and that the elderly and disabled were threatened. I took careful note of it all, then took off overseas to see if their warnings held true. What I found was almost the exact opposite of what I've been told. Long-running and robust systems based on years of open research and debate with multiple safeguards and overwhelming acknowledgement that they do work from across the spectrum, the public, medical bodies, and political parties of every hue. One thing that Belgium, the Netherlands, and Oregon have in common is that their laws came from the same place, an honest acknowledgement by the medical profession that doctors were already making decisions to end patients' lives, and that maybe it was better to regulate this so that patients were better protected from malpractice and doctors from prosecution. I discovered that there are key differences between the laws in Europe and the US, both of which I believe have relevance to how laws will be framed in Australia. In Oregon, the law is limited only to those with a terminal illness and a prognosis agreed by two doctors independently of each other that they have six months or less to live. If they meet the requirements, a doctor will supply them with life-ending medication, which they can choose to take, it's a drink, but only they can administer it when they're ready. It's known as voluntary assisted dying, and the fact that only the patient can end their own life is number one of many safeguards. The number of Oregonians who use this law is tiny, less than half of 1% of all the people who die there. It hasn't changed in 19 years. As the former president of the Oregon Medical Association, Lee Dolan, put it, Oregon's law has been a dramatic success. We have an experiment that works. Anyone that tells you otherwise is giving you a crock of shit. <laughs> Unlike Oregon, doctors in Belgium and the Netherlands mostly end their patients' lives by injection. And the entry point for eligibility is unbearable and untreatable suffering. The patient has to convince two independent doctors of this, and between them, they have to agree that no alternative treatment is available. It is not the trajectory of the illness that determines whether or not a request for euthanasia is granted, but the suffering. This is an acknowledgement that unbearable suffering doesn't just come in packages marked cancer and heart failure. It can come in such things as multiple sclerosis, motor neurone disease, profound stroke, chronic unrelenting rheumatoid arthritis, or multiple irreversible disorders often seen in the elderly. It also acknowledges that sometimes terrible, untreatable illnesses can strike children, even babies, and there are special provisions in their laws to treat such rare cases. 
I found nothing slippery or underhanded about what they were doing in Belgium and the Netherlands. Their systems are based on full and transparent disclosure, where cases are reported and reviewed by peer committees aligned with the coroner's office and with the power to report doctors to state prosecutors for any breaches. In the Netherlands, former Euthanasia Review Committee member Theo Bohr, although a self-confessed skeptic towards their laws at the time of his appointment, acknowledged last year that the review system does its job well. This is what he said. Maybe not. Try that. Can we get the sound up on this, please? Let's try again. The law on assisted dying has, in fact, led to a practice that is transparent. The re Sorry, I'll do it again. The law on assisted dying has, in fact, led to a practice that is transparent. The review committee's report a reporting rate of close to 100%. Practices that formerly took place in hiddenness are now more or less controllable. And despite the claim of some, the law has not led to a deterioration of palliative care. In fact, the quality of palliative care has considerably increased in the past decade. The Netherlands and Belgium are the only countries in the world where end-of-life care has been so thoroughly studied where both the strengths and weaknesses in the system are there for all to see. They do not pretend that their systems are perfect or impervious to abuse because they know that no system can be. But they do know and are proud of the fact that the likelihood of unethical practices has been vastly reduced by the openness of what they do and the controls they have put in place. I discovered also that there is debate within the medical community about some of the more complex cases, such as dementia and psychiatric illnesses but it is debate in the true sense, an ongoing conversation between medical professionals about how best to treat the many different examples of suffering that come before them. To me, this was proof of a healthy system, not one out of control. As with Oregon, the greatest proof I found that these laws work was in the numbers. A huge percentage of people support them. According to The Economist magazine, in excess of 80%, with only 5% opposed, but only a tiny fraction used them. In Belgium, it's less than 2% of all deaths annually. In the Netherlands, less than 4%. It's also important to remember that the overwhelming majority of the people who access these laws have the same thing in common. They are dying. How do we know? Because every year, each of these countries publish detailed records of how many people use these laws, what their ages are, what they're dying of, and they are, by a significant majority, succumbing to the diseases you would expect them to be succumbing to cancer, heart failure, neurological disorders. They are not being killed by the state, as opponents so often like to characterize it. They are dying. What these laws do, quite simply, is give them a choice and some measure of control over how hard that dying needs to be. Beyond the safeguards written into the laws in both Europe and the US, I discovered three unwritten ones which I argue are just as important. One. Doctors are conservative and have a natural reluctance to help people die. In the Netherlands, two-thirds of requests for euthanasia are declined. In Belgium, one quarter. Two, peer oversight. Opponents of these laws within the medical system watch their colleagues like hawks for any breach of the rules. Significantly, with not a single prosecution brought in either the Netherlands or Oregon since these laws began, and only one in Belgium to be heard later this year. Three. Other people fight to stay alive, just as you and I 
fight to stay alive. As Oregon Dr. Peter Regan put it when he was asked why such a tiny number of people use their law, I can't imagine why they would expect an avalanche anywhere. It just turns out that people don't want to die. I also found no credible evidence within the system of the elderly and disabled being abused. To double check, I went outside the system and asked those whose only interest is advocacy for the elderly and the disabled, representatives of their peak bodies in Belgium, the Netherlands and Oregon, if they had any concerns. The response could not have been more emphatic. Not one of these organisations reported any abuse of their members or any threat of abuse under these laws. I put to them every single warning I have been given about how the elderly and disabled were being made vulnerable and disposable under these laws, and they were very clear in their rejection of them. And they went further, explaining that the laws gave their members reassurance that should the worst befall them, they had the choice of asking for help. I heard only two complaints. One from Ilya Soffer, who represents 250 disability groups in the Netherlands, and who told me that some members found the laws so strict they were hard to access. The other came from Bob Jundef, Executive Director of Disability Rights Oregon, who said, since the law has been passed, we've not received a complaint from anyone other than a complaint from a person who is paralyzed and concerned that the law discriminated against them. So how does Australia, with no law for assisted dying, compare to those places where it's legal? To explain, I'm going to draw heavily on the report tabled in June by a cross-party Victorian parliamentary inquiry into end-of-life choices. Running over 10 months, with over 1,000 submissions and hearings involving 157 witnesses, this is the most extensive inquiry into end-of-life choices ever conducted in Australia. It's also unique in that it is the first such inquiry to travel overseas to see for themselves how laws for assisted dying actually work. Here's how they described what they found. We were warned against change on the basis of what purportedly has occurred in jurisdictions that have legalised assisted dying. To evaluate these claims, five members of the committee travelled to the Netherlands, Switzerland, Canada and Oregon. We met with academics, regulators, healthcare professionals, supporters and opponents of the different legalised assistant dying frameworks. The committee also met with doctors, medical and legal experts, palliative care specialists and disability rights groups in jurisdictions where assisted dying is legal and who highlighted the rigorous safeguards, monitoring procedures and high levels of compliance in their jurisdictions. While these jurisdictions differ significantly in their assisted dying models, what they all have in common is robust regulatory frameworks that focus on transparency, patient-centred care and choice. We found no evidence of institutional corrosion or the often cited slippery slope. Instances of assisted dying are rare, even in jurisdictions where it is legal. Assistance in dying is, in the vast majority of cases, provided to people in what would otherwise be the final weeks of their lives. In describing in detail what is currently happening in Victoria, the report painted a dramatic picture of the damage being done to our community by the absence of a law for assisted dying. I've isolated six distinct areas identified in the report, each of which speak to this damage. Even though they're specific to Victoria, there is every reason to assume that the same issues apply across Australia. One, suicides. The committee reported that family members, the Coroner's Court of Victoria and Victoria Police gave evidence about how people experiencing an irreversible deterioration in health are taking their own lives, often in horrific circumstances. 
Evidence was presented from Victorian coroner, State Coroner John Ollie that between January 2009 and December 2013, there were 2,879 suicide deaths in Victoria. Of these, 240 were people who were experiencing an irreversible deterioration in physical health due to disease. Within this group, the highest frequency was for those aged over 65 years, and approximately 50% of cases involved cancer. The stories John Ollie told were horrifying, so much so that he, the coroner, had to collect himself three times while giving evidence. They included a 90-year-old man with prostate cancer and a poor prognosis who shot himself with a nail gun, a 93-year-old woman with crippling arthritis who smuggled a razor blade into her aged care facility and bled to death, an 85-year-old woman who did the same with an assortment of knives and scissors. Coroner Ollie went out of his way to stress that these were people without a history of mental illness faced with the slow, irreversible decline of chronic disease. He said that his office saw no way of preventing these deaths, nor, in his estimation, were they people likely to qualify for palliative care. He went on to say, to my knowledge, the people we're talking about have made an absolutely clear decision. They're determined. The only assistance that could be offered is to meet their wishes, not to prolong their life. Speaking of those left behind, he said, what seems to be a common thread through the family is this absolute sense of respect for someone they love and this absolute sense of helplessness. They know this person is screaming for help, but no one is going to answer the call, not in this society, so they have to die alone. Coroner Ollie estimates the number of elderly Victorians dying in this way at one a week. I contacted the National Coronial Information Service to see if they could give me a sense of the national picture. Their estimate, that two people over the age of 80 are taking their lives in Australia every week, the most common method used, hanging. Number two, it's happening anyway. The report states that academic evidence supports the position put by witnesses to the committee that doctors practice unlawful assisted dying despite its prohibition and despite prospective liability for serious crimes. This is happening without regulation, without support, without transparency or accountability, and from the evidence received, sometimes without patient consent. It went on to detail testimony from Sydney University's Professor of Health Law and Governance, Roger Magnuson, who's interviewed doctors and nurses from Melbourne and Sydney. His research demonstrates how in some cases, patients died without having received assessment for depression or dementia, without adequate counseling or palliative care, and without specialist assessments as to prognosis and treatment alternatives. Nearly 20% of Professor Magnuson's interviewees reported being involved in mismanaged attempts of assisted dying. He found that in many cases, doctors and nurses miscalculated the dosages required to achieve death and resorted in panic to suffocation, strangulation, and injections of air. In some cases, although the patient had apparently expressed a desire to die to a family member or friend, no independent evidence of this was obtained before hastening the patient's death. The committee found that in the absence of regulation, there is the risk of inadequate protection of vulnerable people from coercion, no verification that assisted dying is a measure of last resort, and no established criteria for assessing the merits of a request for assisted dying. Number three, fear of providing pain relief. 
The committee found that the nature of dying under Victoria's end-of-life legal framework for people with a serious and incurable condition can sometimes be harrowing for individuals, their families and communities. Inadequate pain treatment as a consequence of health practitioners' uncertainty about the law was a repeated theme. The Australian Medical Association Victoria, the Health Services Commissioner and others suggested a fear of prosecution amongst medical practitioners may make them hesitant to provide pain management that could have a secondary effect of shortening life. What's it like to be on the other side of that equation? Here's the testimony of Sydney woman Shane Hickson about her mum Deb's last days in palliative care with a brain tumour. She was seizuring for, oh, I don't know how long it was, well over an hour, maybe a couple of hours. She said it was like a giant thrashing around in her body. So the brain, as you know, like it, 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 it creates all the sensations. So things were happening in her. She kept shaking and shaking. And of course, in the back of my mind was that was what she feared the most, was having another seizure. She said, whatever you do, do not let me have another seizure. And so I knew that that through the whole six months that that was what she feared the most because of how dreadful it felt to her. And uh, she kept shaking. It took... When, the, when she didn't stop shaking, we said, can you give her more? It's not working. He said, I can only give her this amount and every 15 minutes I'm not authorised to give her any more. If I give her more, it might end it. So how many nights did this go on altogether? Five. Five days. She went in on Thursday and she died on Tuesday morning. So five days of uh, largely unrelieved pain and distress for her, of course, also for you. And at no point was anyone prepared to go, we can do more. No, 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 not a nurse or doctor or anything. The strong sense I get as I'm listening to you is that you must have all felt, and above all your mum, completely powerless and helpless in this situation. Yes, yes, completely powerless. and. Uh, angry, really, really upset that um, at that such a terrible time that you are sort of battling this, you know, this shouldn't have to be like that. At one point, my old sister, she said to the GP, what, what are we meant to do? Go down on, the, you know, down to King's Cross on the street and, and try and score heroin or something? Like, what, what choice, you know, what, what are you saying? Like, what choice do we have? I mean, we just couldn't believe what was happening at that end stage. Number four, palliative care. The committee heard of the many benefits of palliative care, an area of medicine which has advanced significantly over the last decade. However, palliative care does have limitations, as described by Palliative Care Victoria, who explained that palliative care can sometimes be ineffective at relieving all suffering. It's true that for most people who are dying, palliative care do a wonderful job. Australia has one of the best palliative care systems in the world and we should be proud of it. But as Palliative Care Australia itself acknowledges, quote, it cannot relieve all pain and suffering, even with optimal care. As part of my research, I spent a week with the staff of Sacred Heart Hospice at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. They gave me full access and I was there at all hours, including three o'clock one morning, sharing Nurse Fran Damon's delicious homemade muffins. I couldn't have been more impressed by the compassion and professionalism I found there. But as I spoke to Fran and her fellow nurse Nancy, I learned that this is not always enough. 
it must be very confronting as a nurse when you see a patient who isn't responding to medication. It is, and sometimes that's the doctor's order. They're not ordering enough and, um, you know, we have to ring them in the middle of the night to, to get them to order something because it's just not, nothing's working. Some people are in excruciating pain at the end and, and the family's watching, so um, you have to get the right medication for them. That's a very difficult situation diplomatically for you guys, I would have thought. It is. <laughs> That's a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> Do you ever have patients in that situation ask for help to die? Um, occasionally, yes. Um, they yeah, said, why can't I just die now? Yeah. Why can't it happen soon? How long have I got left? And how do you respond to a request like that? It's a difficult question to answer, but... Uh, but you just have to give them the reassurance that... They, they're not alone. We are here to help them, to guide them through their last days and give them the assurance that they'll be as comfortable as they can. Can be, yeah. As Nancy said, you sometimes wish you could do more. Um, is that also common in your experience? It does. It happens, not very often. No. But there are some that it's it's just not. Nothing works, and it's it's horrible to watch. Yeah. I would imagine that is the toughest part of your job. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, when we've got them nice and comfortable, and and that that's all lovely. Just when we can't control their pain or, or their, their eggs. And a lot of people get terminally restless and it's, it's, it's not nice to watch. They just struggle the whole time. And you do wish you could do something, but there's nothing you can do, really. Nothing works, does it? Do you get people that ask you sometimes, please help me to die, I'm, I'm ready to go? Mm -hmm. Not many. No, one or two. Maybe this, they're understanding that they are to die, so they don't ask. But there are people who very occasionally would say, you know, help me. Just I give me something. Stand, I can't stand Sorry. this. Just give me something. But, you, you know, it's and you say, no, thing. I'm sorry, we can't. And, of course, pain is only part of the story. I want to take a moment here to talk about the most relevant word in this debate, not pain, but suffering. One palliative care doctor explained to me how some patients can have multiple concurrent symptoms, including suffocation, fatigue, delirium, pain, nausea and confusion, often added to by multiple drugs giving multiple adverse effects, such as vomiting, sleeplessness and constipation, to a point where they require palliation with deep sedation. As another put it, for some patients, having their loved ones see them in this way is extremely difficult. The dying are the witnesses to their family's pain just as the family are witnesses to theirs. And physical pain is not the hardest part. Across the board, everyone I spoke to in palliative care, both in Australia and overseas, whether they believed in the law or not, agreed that the most difficult suffering to treat is not physical, but existential. This is a patient's distress about their condition, their illness, what it's doing to them, their loss of control, or their very sense of self. Not a physical symptom like pain or nausea, it is mental anguish. This emotional, 
as well as the physical suffering, can last for days, weeks, months. As Professor Alex Broom from New South Wales University, who spent six months embedded in a Catholic hospice, put it to me, the loss of a person occurs often way before the point of death. The effect this has on nurses and doctors can also be profound. This is what nurse Coral Levitt told me about her first experiences of being asked by a patient for help to die. I would go into the pan room and cry for 10 minutes because I didn't know what to do and I didn't know what to say. I knew I couldn't do it. I knew there was nothing I could do about it. Saying that to a patient that's begging you to die doesn't help, doesn't change it. They don't change their view because you tell them that it's against the law and that there's nothing you can do. They don't see anything else other than their own distress and their own suffering. So sometimes you just had to sit there and hold the hand of a person dying so that they could squeeze it and try and ease their own pain. And of course, as Coroner Ollie's evidence shows, not all suffering sits, sits within hospital or palliative care. Here's how father of two, 52-year-old Laurie Daniel, described to me what it's like living with multiple sclerosis. You know, there's, a, there's so many dimensions to in this, uh, and it, it takes things away from you bit by bit. Particularly, I, I was a very active man, so, you know, my thing was, um, you know, gardening and um, home development and all that sort of thing. I just can't do that. You know, for example, neuropathic pain is... It's, it's not like normal pain, it's pain that arises in the central nervous system, in the brain, the spinal cord, peripheral nerves, and it's, you know, you can get burning or tingling or numbness. So, so my fingers, I'm sitting here and I'm, you just, you, you want to scream inside because um, of what's happening in your hands, but you've got to carry on a normal conversation and you can't be screaming all day long, you know. Um, you're feeling that now, as we're speaking? Yeah, it never lets up, not for one second. And the only time it does is when you're asleep. Other things you get, uh, sometimes it's like a bruised sensation in your muscles, like, like you've been cooked. Um, or you get the sensation like uh, little ants crawling through your skin and muscles. Um, and it's, it's just, it's really horrible. Um, and it, yeah, it doesn't let up and there's, there's nothing you can take for it. Like, they can give you these drugs, um, but often, you know, the, the cure, I mean, there's no cure, but the medication can be worse than the disease sometimes because there's so many bad side effects to the medications they give you. What's more frightening for you right now, dying or living? Um, probably living. Living is, is a very frightening experience, yeah. Through MS, I've pretty much lost my fear of dying. Um, because sometimes, you know, I think there are things that are worse than, than death. <laughs> As Laurie pointed out, he might have to live another 20 years with that sort of suffering or worse before he dies of natural causes. His only other option right now to end that suffering is to commit suicide with all the risks of failure and trauma to his family that entails. So when doctors argue, as some do, the palliative care is the answer to everything because, quote, all pain at the end of life can be dealt with by powerful drugs. They're performing a medical sleight of hand. Pain is just one part of this question. Suffering is the key. In the face of such suffering, are there patients in palliative care who make rational and persistent requests for a hastened death? Yes, and Palliative Care Australia acknowledges as much. For those patients, 
whose wish to die they cannot or will not accede to, what can palliative care offer? Number five, palliative sedation. The committee found that research shows that some doctors will do what they consider to be necessary to end a patient's suffering when they're at the end of life. This may be through continuous palliative sedation or intensified alleviation of pain, even if this may unintentionally result in death. Palliative sedation was defined to the committee by Rodney Syme, Dr. Rodney Syme from Dying with Dignity Victoria as continuous delivery of analgesics and sedatives by titration, a slow and incremental increase without the provision of hydration to slowly induce over some days a deep continuous sedation which can only result in death. Dr. Natasha Michael, Director of Palliative Medicine at Cabrini Health explained, continuous deep sedation is sometimes instituted in people where we feel they have intractable pain that we just cannot manage. Many palliative care physicians say that palliative sedation rarely happens. This may or may not be true. One of the committee's findings is that continuous palliative sedation is widely accepted as an appropriate way to relieve suffering for someone at the end of life. However, its use is not centrally recorded. The extent of its use is unknown and no guidelines exist to regulate it. For many patients, palliative sedation provides satisfactory relief of their suffering, also for their families. But being put into a coma until you die is not how everybody wants to end their days. I spent many hours talking with Ray Godbold, a palliative care nurse, who told me this. I think everybody, um, if we all sat down on a Friday night and had a few drinks together and people were honest on what their um, beliefs were. A lot of them would come out and say, look, that was a shocking death. We should have done something else to help, you know. I've been there when lots of people have had terrible deaths that um, no matter what palliative care people say, the last 24 to 48 hours of somebody's life can be completely unexpected, you know. And there's only, the only options you've got is to make that person unconscious. And then you've got the family sitting there looking at this person who's been, been in terrible suffering, is now unconscious, is gonna take hours or days or weeks to die, mm. you know? So that's not acceptable, I don't think. Number six, refusal of treatment. The committee found that some people are choosing to stop having treatment, knowing that this will result in their imminent death. Others spoke of the trauma of watching seriously ill loved ones refuse food and water to expedite death and finally relieve their suffering. Seared into my brain is the conversation I had with Professor Richard Chai, the head of palliative care at St Vincent's Sacred Heart, who when I asked how long it can take for a patient to die by electing not to ingest any food or water, which is a legal choice, he told me it could take weeks, weeks which were psychologically painful for both the person dying and their family watching on. He even volunteered that he had had one patient who was so distressed at how long it was taking to die this way that she committed suicide within palliative care. Shortly after that conversation with Professor Chai, I received a letter, unprompted, from Jason in Queensland, who wrote of his dying wife, Melanie. He said, at the moment, she's lying next to me in a hospital bed, slowly dying from pancreatic cancer. It's been 10 days without any food or drink, and she's now deteriorated to just a shell of the woman she used to be. She's not in pain, but it's hardly dignified. She would not have wanted to go out like this. Jason wrote to me again a week later. He wanted to emphasize the heroic work of the palliative care team in caring for his wife, but he added this. 
The last five days or so were particularly bad. There were very few signs that Melanie was conscious at all, and letting her lie there, just gasping for air, seemed cruel. Melanie was just 38. It still amazes me that we live in a society where it is legally and ethically acceptable for a dying patient to choose a slow, psychologically painful death by dehydration and starvation, but legally and ethically unacceptable for that same dying patient to choose a death that is quick and painless. Why should a competent adult who is dying and who is suffering and who asked to die quickly be told they have to die slowly instead? It's a question I put to several doctors. Often it was followed by a pause and then the answer. Euthanasia is not part of quality care. This is in such stark contrast to what I found overseas, where in Belgium, Arsène Mouly, the former head of palliative care for Flanders, talked about euthanasia as an act of love towards his patient. He told me, anywhere in the world I would ask why they do not accept euthanasia, because certainly palliative care is a good thing, a very good thing, but certainly it does not solve the issue for all patients when they are ready to die. How can you say that you don't want to help if you're in palliative care? What do you do then with patients who want euthanasia? How can you say to a patient who suffers, keep suffering, tomorrow it will be better? In its conclusions, the committee rejected maintaining the status quo as an inadequate, head-in-the-sand approach to policy making and the plight of Victorians discussed in their report. They recommended a law for assisted dying that would allow people to seek assistance to die. In their words, this would, quote, not only enable patients' end-of-life wishes to be respected, but also protect patients, particularly vulnerable people, from abuse and coercion. The committee also found strongly in favour of increased resources and funding for, and education about palliative care. In so doing, they made it abundantly clear that assisted dying and palliative care were both important points on the spectrum of end-of-life care in general. In emphasising this, the committee highlighted the words of the man known as the father of Australian palliative care, Professor Ian Maddox, who said, rather than fighting a rearguard action, I suggest the proponents of palliative care join forces with the advocates of assisted dying and with mutual respect and dialogue, ensure that enabling laws are framed with a care and precision that allows no abuse and promotes best outcomes. Professor Maddox, who would like to see referral to palliative care be a mandatory component of any response to a request for an assisted death, put his philosophy to me with these words. I think that, that you try to do the loving thing in whatever situation you land. And um, while the, the Catholic debate will say, you know, talk about love as being most important and God's love, come keep um, love has got many ways of operating, I think, and, and I, I believe that assisting somebody to die can be a loving act. Euthanasia should be done the way we do palliative care, and palliative care physicians should be ready to be part of it if they are allowed to, and they feel able to. They should do it with love. They should do it with love. Back in 1997, when the people of Oregon were asked to vote on whether or not to pass their death with dignity law, the proponents of the law did their research and discovered that the most persuasive voice in the conversation, the one most trusted by the public, was that of nurses. In the debate here in Australia, 
The voice we've mostly heard to date is that of doctors. The AMA, even though they only represent 29% of doctors, are opposed. Palliative Care Australia and the Royal College of Physicians are the same, or at least their leadership are. Whenever polls have been done of Australian doctors, they've demonstrated that, similar to overseas, about 50% support a change to the law. There is only one medical organisation in this country that officially supports a law for assisted dying. Significantly, it's the organisation that sees the suffering close up and on a daily basis. That organisation is yours. Here is what the ANMF position statement on assisted dying says. We support legislative reform so that persons with a terminal or incurable illness that creates unrelieved, profound suffering shall have the right to choose to die with dignity in a manner acceptable to them and shall not be compelled to suffer beyond their wishes. You may not know this, but the first country in the world to have a law for assisted dying was Australia. That was in the Northern Territory back in 1995. Only four terminally ill people were able to use it before the law was controversially repealed by John Howard's government. Since then, there have been 28 attempts made in different state parliaments to pass a law. Not one has got to the stage where the detail of such a law could be debated. The claim most commonly used to defeat it, that, quote, no safeguard can be devised to protect the vulnerable, has never been seriously examined, despite voluminous evidence from overseas that safeguards can and do work. And yet opinion polls over the last 20 years show public support for assisted dying always at between 70 and 80 per cent. What a dereliction of our elected representative's duty. After all, who could be more vulnerable and in need of protection than a person who is dying? The report handed down by the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry in June represents the best chance yet for this law to be written in Australia. It is a seriously thought through, evidence-based response to the harm being done in our community by the lack of an assisted dying law. Currently, legislation is before the South Australian Parliament for the 12th time and will shortly be put before the New South Wales Parliament as well. In the months that lie ahead, you will see some doctors and representatives of palliative care step forward to say that we don't need these laws. They'll argue things like, in my whole career, I've never seen a patient beg for help to die, or assisted dying will destroy the trust between patients and doctors, or that the solution to this problem is not assisted dying, it's more resources for palliative care. You'll hear the words, do no harm, intoned with the same solemn force and the same disregard for the real harm they cover up as that other famous three-word slogan, stop the boats. What you won't hear is any admission from them of the damage being inflicted on our community by the laws we currently have. If history is any guide, our politicians will ignore the evidence of this harm and take the readily disproven arguments against as reason, yet again, not to act. So how do we change this? Over the last three months, I've been pulling together a national organisation to campaign for law reform. It's called Go Gentle Australia, and it will be online shortly. And one of our tasks has been to collate a book called The Damage Done, which includes the story of Eileen Dorr. As she was dying of cancer last year, 90-year-old Eileen kept a diary. Despite her clearly stated wish to die, she was forced to endure 17 painful weeks until the disease finally took her. Hoping to hasten nature's course, she began to starve herself to death. In her diary, Eileen wrote, my country's laws decree 
death by a thousand cuts for me. Eileen's is one of 72 testimonies in this book that describe with horrifying clarity the damage being done across Australia in the absence of a law for assisted dying, written by sons, daughters, husbands, wives, partners and friends, as well as the dying themselves. They detail trauma and suffering on a staggering scale. The testimonies have come from people of all ages, the youngest 14, the oldest 100, and all walks of life. They represent almost every Australian state and territory. They are blue-collar, white-collar, devoutly religious, avowedly not. The diseases they faced are mostly cancer, but also MS, motor neurone disease, and other medical horrors. What brings them together is the cruel way in which they all suffered, or suffer still. With descriptions such as akin to torture, and like a horror movie, what is striking about these testimonies is the repeated expressions from those left behind of shock, anger, and helplessness, sometimes reaching back decades. Some describe keeping grandchildren and children away from a cherished parent or aunt or grandfather because the dying was so hideous, so scarring. Talking about death is hard enough. Talking about bad deaths is even tougher. It takes courage. For many, it means admitting to the terrible sense that they failed their loved ones. Perhaps bravest of all are the testimonies from doctors and nurses, some of whom have openly admitted to helping patients die. The trauma many of them have had to deal with in the face of their patients' suffering is palpable. May their example encourage others in the medical profession to come forward and speak openly about what they've seen and even what they do. Had the abuses, cruelty, and harm inflicted by our laws and so vividly captured in these testimonies happened within one institution, we would long ago have had a royal commission. But because they've happened in many places, palliative care wards, nursing homes, general hospitals, people's houses, and because each has been a private tragedy, they've been invisible, deniable, ignorable. Not anymore. The damage done is not intended as a critique of Australia's palliative care services or the dedicated doctors and nurses who give their best. Rather, it reveals what happens despite their efforts. Enough copies of this book have been printed to send to every state and federal politician in Australia. Should they continue to stand in the way of a law for assisted dying, they will do so in full knowledge of the suffering taking place in our community because of that refusal. Suffering that will continue every week, of every month, of every year, until they act. But this book is only part of what Go Gentle Australia is doing. Our key job is to bring together the great coalition of voices in support of a law for assisted dying and amplify them to a point where politicians can no longer ignore them. These are the voices of patients, families, doctors, members of various churches, and representatives of the disability and legal communities. But most importantly, it's you. There's a reason why nurses were the most trusted voice in the debate in Oregon, and I have no cause to believe it's any different here. You, not doctors, are the ones who are with the patients 24 hours a day. It's you who provide all of the care and make most of the decisions regarding palliation. Doctors may make the medication orders, but it's you who make the decisions of how and when to administer any additional palliative medicine that is required. You are the ones who see the suffering. You are the ones who hear your patients' pleas for help to die. The Nurses' Code of Ethics states that 
nurses actively preserve the dignity of people through practice kindness and by recognizing the vulnerability and powerlessness of people in their care. And your NMBA professional standards demands of you that you advocate on behalf of your patients and that each person is treated as an individual with the aim of respecting their rights and preferences while empowering choice. An assisted dying law will not only offer choice and dignity to your patients, it will offer protection to you and clear guidelines as you negotiate good palliation with doctors. I would encourage you to read the ANMF's position statement, and if you're in support of it, discuss it with your colleagues. Of course, if you're not in support, that is your absolute right. The very core of these laws is that they're voluntary for nurses and doctors every bit as much as patients. But if you are, then now is the time for you to be heard, for the New South Wales branch of the ANMF to help your politicians understand that forcing a dying patient to suffer at the end of their illness against their will is the very definition of doing harm. A law for assisted dying is not about a so-called right to die. As one Dutch doctor told me, death is not a right, death is a fact at the end of life. But it is, instead, a right to ask for help if we are dying and beyond meaningful medical treatment that will change the trajectory of our dying. A right to have a choice about what happens to us at the end of our lives and not be coerced when we are at our most vulnerable into a cruel and avoidable death. In the words of one Belgian palliative care doctor, when someone is suffering, how can we ask them to suffer more? 